Now, the other myth is, and, and man, people have got to get this out of their head because this gets repeated ad nauseum on the media. They say the stock market is not the economy. That is a true statement, except it's totally erroneous. But historically, going back through history, there's a very high correlation between two things. One is economic growth. The other is earnings. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart here at the end of the week. Looking forward to another weekly market recap with my good friend Lance Roberts. Hey, Lance, how are you? I'm doing fine. Just uh, ready for a long weekend. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I think a lot of people are, uh, at least those that have been watching the markets recently. Um, so I got a bit of a list here. Um, and uh, let's see here. I think there's a lot of people that are, uh, you know, if anything, I would say are just kind of getting sick and tired of the markets right now. But um, let, me, let me let me let actually, you drive here. That's a, that, actually that's a good thing. I mean, you know, the the what we want to see you know, ultimately, is we don't want people wanting to buy stocks. You know, we just want people to give up on the market. That's when we'll find the bear market bottom, right? You know, it's something I'm actually writing in our newsletter for this weekend is that what we need, and, you know, July is normally a little bit seasonally stronger month. Now, seasonality hasn't worked at all this year, right? So, you know, the seasonally strong period of the year didn't work this year. Seasonally strong months didn't work this year. Seasonally weak months were weaker than expected. Um, it's just been that year where nothing's really seemed to work. But what we need here is a bit of a rally that would get Jim Cramer on CNBC to start pounding the table that the bear market bottom is in. And that'll be the opportunity to likely, you know, raise more cash and, and be a little bit more cautious. We're not through this bear market cycle yet. And uh, another thing we're talking about in this weekend's newsletter is that, you know, earnings estimates on the S&P have not accounted for recession. And I know you've probably gotten your notes squirreled away over there somewhere. The GDP Now report that came out today. You just mentioned actually, the, the, literally number one and number two on my <laughs> list here. So keep going. The GDP report from the Atlanta Fed came out yesterday. They put out an update, which was negative 1% growth for the first quarter. And in one day, they updated it again today on July the 1st, for negative 2.1%. And now this, mind you, is down from 0.3% positive growth just a week or so ago um, when they were making that revision there. So we've right. gone- Sorry to interrupt, but that was that was, yeah. a, that was an upwards revision from 0.0. Yes. So it had trended down to 0.0. And this just shows kind of like, yeah. what the heck are these guys watching, right? Because it trended down and whoa, hey, actually it's getting positive again. Whoops, no, now it's down negative 1%. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, next day, now it's down negative 2.1%. <laughs> yeah, but, but again, you know, so, so that's a great point. Um, you know, the Atlanta Fed, so as opposed to the Bureau of Economic Analysis and the Federal Reserve, by the way, which looks at trailing data, uh, the GDP now is tied to real-time inputs into the economy. So right. for instance, um, you know, you've got, say, say 0% growth, right? And then you have a little bit better than expected jobless claims numbers that come out, which contribute to the unemployment side. So that actually increases GDP a bit based on that report. And then the next two days, you get terrible PMIs from Dallas, from the Richmond Fed, from the Philly Fed. Uh, Chicago PMI was very negative. Uh, ISM was negative. Spending was a much weaker than expected. So all that 
you know, fed that real-time data fed in and pulled that quarterly report down. So that's why you see these bounces because they're looking at more real-time data versus the Fed, which is again, you know, we just saw the third quarter, the third estimate this past week of the first quarter GDP. So here we are in June, finally getting the last number for the first quarter GDP, which actually right. turned out to be even weaker than previously expected, is 1.6 versus 1.5. Right. So ne negative 1.6. It's been negative 1.6, correct. And and see, and this is a problem for the Fed. And one of the reasons that the Fed is going to make a mistake, they're looking at data that is still in revision mode from three months ago. And this is particularly problematic when you get into inflation, where the latest really kind of housing price data is three months old. And remember, you know, too, and, and we talked about here about selling houses and those type of things. So when you start seeing price declines in homes, that isn't, they, you know, that's, that's accounting for people that are selling their houses, et cetera. So for instance, you know, if the house is listed on, on, you know, an MLS website, as an example, let's say Adam's going to sell his rental property that doesn't belong to him. Um, so he puts his, he puts his property up for sale and he says, okay, this house is worth, you know, $1 million. So that data gets sucked in to the pricing of houses, right? But that doesn't mean that Adam sold the house at a million dollars. He may sell that house at 700,000. So by the time that data shows up, so think about, you know, he, first thing he's going to do is got to sell the house and then it's got to, you know, go through the whole appraisal process, inspection, go through closing, finally get to closing and then get reported. That's about three months altogether. So all this housing data that we look at relative to the inflation is very dated data. So again, while we're looking at housing inputs, which is 42% of CPI, by the way, it's a very big component. That data is about three months lag. So it's going to take a couple more months before we see that housing data start to get priced into current inflation. But you know, we just saw PCE, personal consumption expenditures, turn down uh, this past week. That's a big, that's what the Fed watches in terms of inflation, by the way. They watch the, the, the trimmed mean PCE. That's their inflation gauge. That actually had a fairly decent decline. Uh, this past week over the first quarter. So again, this is all starting to price in. But the reason the Fed's going to make a mistake is because they're looking at data from the first quarter and real-time data is suggesting that inflation, economic growth, real wages, real spending are all much weaker than what data looks like, you know, on a trailing basis. Yeah. And when I mean, people say that the Fed tends to make mistakes because they're looking through the rear view mirror, it's exactly what you've just been talking about, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, you um, you mentioned a couple important things there. Um, one is that GDP uh, expectations are now negative and continue to get more negative now by the day, literally. Um, but that's another good indicator. Uh, I guess technically now that that Q2 is done, we are in what's called a technical recession. Mm -hmm. All right. That's back to back quarters of negative GDP growth. Um, but those are definitely continued indicators of what we've been talking about, which is that the economy is slowing here, right? And so we've been sort of waving our hands and saying, look, folks, slower economic growth going forward, maybe potential for recession. I think we both think the odds for recession are pretty darn high now at this point in time, but this is just sort of validating data, right? Um, but the other big thing you mentioned that I, I do want to dig into a bit, which is, um, we, we talked about this in a few previous videos, but is um, <clears throat> the... 
it's likely to be the next shoe to drop to drive asset prices even lower, which is the um, uh, bringing down of forward earnings estimates, right? So we, we talked about how um, if, if you looked at, I, I don't know what the latest ones are as of today, but as of recently, uh, the average analyst expectation for S&P corporate earnings next year was still up 10%. Yeah. <laughs> despite the slowing economy and all these other things, right? So it, it, it's like, a, at this point, it feels like a, a fantasy, or at least if you're on the numbers, it definitely yeah. slaps you in the face as such. Um, and so we've been saying, hey, when, you know, in mid-July, when these companies really start, you know, announcing their Q, having their Q2 earnings calls, we're very likely going to see the street and the analysts getting disappointed as these companies bring down their forward projections. And that's going to force right. the analysts to have to revise their models, uh, bring down future earnings projections. And mathematically, that would bring down, you know, what, what, what they're putting out there as target prices yeah. for stocks, right? And we got some validation on that just the other day when Micron announced their recent earnings. Um, and they crushed it from both a, a quarterly earnings and a, and a revenue standpoint. Um, but their forward projections were so disappointing that the stock just got clobbered. And I sort of looked at that as validation of what we're talking about here. It's like, yeah, I think this is a preview of what's to come. What do you think? Well, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I want to, uh, we're going to solve a couple of myths here while we're, while we're talking about this. But, you know, it's not just Micron that has been really guiding down on forward estimates. If you take a look at negative earnings, re, uh, negative earnings revisions from companies, right, there's been a very, very, big tick up in companies reporting much weaker than expected. You know, they killed it on earnings, to your point, but then their forward guidance was so terrible that it just crushed the stocks. Netflix was a good example of that. Uh, the, the earnings were okay. It was their forward guidance that killed them. And, you know, we saw this from company after company after company. Amazon was another one. And these stocks were getting clobbered. You know, they were down 10, 15, 20%, and then went lower even after that. But Let's solve a couple of myths here real quick. One is I, I read this article today that said, you know, it, it, you know, yes, we've had two quarters of negative GDP growth, but that doesn't mean we're in a recession because, you know, the economy, you know, the consumer has so much cash on their balance sheet. They're, they're completely ready for this whole recession. So, yeah, we had two negative quarters of, of economic growth, but it'll be okay because, the consumer is so well healed, they're, they're about to pick up spending and it'll all be fine. Uh, that's a complete fallacy. Uh, so, you know, we talked about this before, you know, a, a big bunch of those savings are held by the top 10% of income earners, not the bottom 90%. And, you know, we run this analysis. I was actually on Charles Payne yesterday talking about this very thing saying, you know, if you take a look at the average household and their standard of living. So if you take the standard of living and run it back to the 1960s and inflation adjusts that over time, that gap between just what they have in income and, and what's reported as savings requires an additional $6,300 a year in debt just to maintain their standard of living. And this is why we're seeing personal consumption expenditures decline. We're seeing retail sales decline. We're seeing you know all this kind of weakness on that spending front because their wages aren't keeping up with the cost of living. And now they're having to make those decisions about, well, what am I not going to buy, right? right? I'm not going to travel this summer. I'm not going to buy these things. I'm, I got to just try to get by right now. And they're not set up for it. You know, we just, you just sent me a great article last week uh, that I'm converting into a, a, an article for our website, talking, giving statistics about the average household savings. It's just, you know, dismal, you know, when you look at the average household. 
That's um, point number five here on the list. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 a it's an important point because it feeds into this psychology. Now the other myth is, and and man, people have got to get this out of their head because this gets repeated ad nauseum on the media. They say the stock market is not the economy. That is a true statement, except it's totally erroneous. Because yes, the stock market's not the economy, it's the stock market. And the stock market can do things sometimes that's not reflective of the actual economy in the short term, i.e. we can have little, you know, like bubbles caused by a lot of money at monetary infusion, like we saw in 2020, 2021. But historically, going back through history, there's a very high correlation between two things. One is economic growth, the other is earnings. And the reason that those two are highly correlated is because the earnings and revenue for companies come from where? Economic activity. The stock market doesn't exist in a vacuum all by itself. It is directly tied to the, you know, the, the incomes and revenues that are generated by the economic activity of what you, know, you and I are spending in the economy. You know, we go out and buy a new Apple Watch or we buy a new Mac or we go buy a new car, that's where those companies' revenues come from. They just don't magically show up somewhere. So yeah, markets can deviate because we get very excited at times and we run stock prices up well ahead of, of valuations, uh, so well, well ahead of earnings. This is how we get overvaluation. Then there's points where the stock market can run down and be more depressed price-wise than what earnings are truly showing. And that's how we get undervaluation and get those good buying opportunities. But the stock market may not be the economy, but the economy and the stock market are very integral to each other. And you can't dismiss those two. So if we're talking about an economic recession, it's going to impact the stock market because ultimately investors will reprice earnings to adjust for that decline in earnings relative to the price they're paying for that future form of cash flows. Absolutely. And just to even simplify things further, um, really the relationship there is the stock market is a multiple slapped on the earnings that the economy is producing. Right. Same thing. Yep. And, and, and because of that, the stock market actually is supposed to be a bit of a forecasting vehicle because the stock market really is pricing forward earnings expectations. Mm -hmm. Right. So if the economy is likely to perform less well in the future and analysts are doing their jobs, right then stock should actually correct before the actual economy slows down. They should be predicting that in advance if they're doing their job right. And, and, and they do. And if you go back in history and look at, you know, you know, by, we talked before, by the time the National Bureau of Economic Research dates the recession, right, it'll be two quarters from now or three quarters from now. Right. And they'll come back and say, oh, yeah, you know, the recession actually started in January of 2022, right? And we'll go, oh, well, Thanks for telling me now, <laughs> but the stock market was already going down. If you go and if you go back through history and, and look at where the National Bureau of Economic Research actually dated the recession, so on what date did they say the recession started? So, an example we talked about before here in our conversations in December of 2008, the National Bureau of Economic Research came out. The recession started in December of 2007. So if you waited for the announcement of the recession, you completely missed the bear market, right? But the bear market occurred and was telling you we were in a recession. It just hadn't been dated yet. And if you go back through history, there's always about a six to nine month lag, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, um, 
but there's about a six to nine month lag between the actual you know, downturn in the market and when the recession actually gets dated. So again, this is why you know, as investors, we have to pay attention to the, the real-time data, pay attention to what, what the market's telling us. And the market's telling us that earnings estimates are too high. Those have to come down. The economy is a lot weaker than what we currently expected is from the trailing data. And investors are pricing all this in right now. Yeah, yeah. So very, very well said. I think the important thing just to underscore here is um, as the conditions deteriorate, th there are certain parties that have to be involved in that, right? There's the, the mm -hmm. companies that have to say, hey, uh, you know, we know our business better than anybody else. And we think this is what's going to happen going forward. Then there's the analysts who have to take the company information and then run that through their models and say, okay, we think a fair price for this stock is X. And then there are investors who have to consider all that data and then make up their mind at the end of the day. And just one of the things that we're kind of putting our finger on right here is, we think it's pretty clear that the, the fundamentals are deteriorating. A lot of companies are beginning to agree with us. The analysts haven't yet fully corrected their models yet. So there is a right. bit of an arbitrage moment here right now where I think those paying attention are saying, stocks are probably still on average valued too high right now, given what we think the, the revisions are gonna be. Now, time will tell whether that's right or wrong, but we're in this really sort of interesting time right now. For whatever reason, the analysts have just been reluctant to pull those forward earnings down into the, 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 the world of reality yet. Right. Well, no, and look, if you want the world's best indicator for when to buy and sell stocks um, on a longer term basis, right? So if you wanna be a buy and hold investor, Nothing wrong with that. Invest for the long term, it's awesome. But you still got to manage that risk, right? You don't want to spend you know, five to seven years getting back even after a big bear market drawdown. So if you're the type of person that wants to just you know, kind of buy some stocks and sit on them, but know when that kind of moment is to come out of the market and, and wait for your next opportunity, all you have to watch for is the annual rate of change in, in forward earnings versus the stock market. And what you'll see is, is that pretty much every time those forward rate of earnings begin on a year-over-year -year basis change, begin to fall, the stock market tracks it very closely. And so when those revisions are negative, that's when you want to be out of the market. And we're very negative on those revisions right now. And those are going to continue to get worse. So until those revisions go back to being positive, you can just kind of sit on the sidelines and wait. Hey, that's a great indicator. So uh, just folks watching, we'll make a note here to make sure that we we bring this topic back up when the indicator's doing something different than it is right, right now. In other words, signifying a, a major shift. Um, all right, I got another topic I want to go to real quick, though. You're, um, the way you describe the NBER in terms of just always being you know, way late in terms of reporting the obvious of what was going to happen, it kind of reminds me of uh, the guy that shows up as you're watching your car uh, getting uh, peeled off the tree by the tow truck <laughs> who, you know, sipping his coffee and says, hey, buddy, you should watch out for that tree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, information that would have been useful like two hours ago. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, Bill, Bill, Bill Ingvall, a comedian, he has a great, a great set he does called Here's Your Sign. And it's kind of like that, you know, your, your, your car is wrapped around a tree and somebody walks up and says, hey, do you uh, wreck into a tree? It's like, yeah, here's your sign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, people ask stupid questions all the time, but, it, but it's true. I mean, you know, most of the data that we get is not really very useful in terms of, you know, managing money and, and all that. Economics is important, but it's more about, and this is what our job is in our shop, which is to take this real-time economic data and then say, what does this mean over the next three to six months? And look, it's all a guess, right? I mean, right, investing, 
yeah, it's all probabilities and statistics. And we know that, and this is why we build a bunch of composite models. Uh, we have a, a, what we call an economic composite index. And I've been posting this a lot lately in our newsletters and blogs, because it has a very, very high correlation to real-time economic activity. It has 100 different data points in it, covers everything from lagging indicators to leading indicators, manufacturing, the service. So it's a very broad, very complete indication of what happens in the overall economy. Um, and it also has a very high correlation to, and this is more real-time, but it has a very high correlation to the very best economic recession indicator, which is the six-month rate of change in the leading economic index. It is that that one indicator is kind of like the uh, 10-year, two-year treasury yield curve. It has a, a, a almost perfect prediction of when you're going into recessions. Both of those indicators are real-time and that LEI six-month index have now turned negative. So we're, you know, we've got everything set up for the recession to be announced. It just hasn't been announced yet. But you know, this is why it's important. You know, we've got to look at this data, make some assumptions. And, and again, it's all about statistics and probabilities. We made, you know, again, you know, one thing that bothers me, Adam, right now is that there's all, too many people talking about a recession. We're talking about right, it. Now. Everybody's talking about it. I and, know that bugs you. <laughs> it does. Because, because recessions are never well, are never this well forecast. Maybe this time is different. I don't know. You know, it, but this is statistics and, and probabilities, and and the data says we're very likely going to be in a recession. So we've got to kind of manage portfolios for that. You know, you know, there's is there a possibility that we could not be in a recession? Sure. Um, we're going to need something really soon to turn that around. Like the Fed's going to have to stop doing what they're doing and pivot. You know, that could that could be the the case, but I just don't see that happening right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, to the, the average person, to the viewer of this channel, you know, it doesn't matter what they call it. It matters what it feels like and how it impacts your life directly. Right. So to a lot of people that might end up feeling like a big recession, even if it never gets called one. Right. If, if, if right. conditions continue to deteriorate the way that we think. And, and um, there is a topic I'm trying to get to here, but real quick. Um, uh, I'll put up one stat here. Uh, it's a chart I tweeted out, I think, yesterday. Um, so I think I've mentioned that I've been sort of following layoff trackers and whatnot right. because I'm that, that's a big concern of mine. That's really what yep. kind of keeps me up here is that right now the narrative is still more employ uh, more openings for than job applicants and you know anybody wants to get a job and get one and it's the great resignation and all that type of stuff, right? And I. I feel like this thing can turn on a dime um, if conditions continue to deteriorate the way that we are, they are, and that we are going to very quickly potentially flip into a scenario where it's a it's a massive jobs drought. You know, the, the big yeah. the big question is just, hey, I, I need some income <clears throat> to survive this, right? And if I get laid off, obviously I, I don't have that income anymore. Yeah. So um, uh, I'll put up the chart here, but it's it, it shows from this one layoff tracker, it tracks tech layoffs. Um, in July, so last July, a year ago, one company reported layoffs last July. In June, and, and the, the chart wasn't even fully complete when I took the screenshot here, 197 did. Yeah. Right. So um, it's just showing how quickly this is building yeah. steam. And that, but that's the way it always occurs, right? I mean, you know, you always get this very rapid tick up in layoffs when they start. Just a, uh, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, Meta, whatever they call themselves today, 
um, just started talking about, hey, you know what, you you might want to start considering volunteer. If you don't like it here, this is a good time mm-hmm. to, to voluntarily quit because layoffs are probably coming. And so, you know, you might want to take your opportunity to slip out the door here. Um, the problem is, is where you're going to go now, right? Because no, everybody's putting on hiring freezes and everything else. I want to say something though, real quick, because we've talked about this before. I'm very suspect of these job openings numbers and right. a, a lot of these employment numbers for a variety of reasons. One is how they calculate the data. Um, not saying that it's intentionally incorrect, but I think but a there's lot of a lot potential of, double counting with all the different yeah, job sites we've talked about. That, yeah. Exactly. The other thing too is though that when we start talking about unemployment, one of the things when we get that that monthly unemployment report, there's what's called a birth death adjustment that is included in that. And that generally adds anywhere from a hundred to two hundred thousand jobs, you know, to the to the roles. And what's it, what that calculates is, and, and that's supposed to be an estimate for all these people that are starting a business. So so you know, Adam and I, we decide one night that we're going to go start a business selling widgets online. And so what we don't, you know, we just go form our corporation and, you know, we go to work and, and we don't really tell anybody what we're doing, right? We don't report that anywhere. We just kind of form this entity and go. And, you know, so we've got this job. And so what they're trying to capture is, is all these people that are starting businesses, this birth. And, and then, of course, there's also businesses that are going out of business and that's the death. So we have births and deaths every month. And surprisingly, there's always a lot more births than there are deaths. And so we always add a, you know, add a, a bunch of numbers to the employment role. And ironically, on months where we see a very kind of weak employment report, there's a big input of this birth death adjustment. Now, here's the funny story about this, or I shouldn't say funny, but the reality of this. There's actually, so if you take a look at the uh, Census Bureau data and the Small Business Association data, they track how many small businesses are open or how many corporations are formed. So there's like 32 million corporations in the U.S. Now, here's your pop quiz for the day. Out of the 32 million businesses in the U.S., how many of them actually have employees? Want to take a guess? Uh, I mean, more than just a, a single a solo operator? Um, no, no. Actually have employees, period. Like have one employee or more. How many do you think have one employee or more? Okay. Uh, it's going to be a lower number than most people think. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Six million. Five million. Pardon me? Five. It's six. Okay. So all the other ones are, you know, family trust, you know, estate planning tools, okay. people form so a corporation. Literally a, a, a paper shell, basically. Yeah, paper shell stuff. People form, you know, people form entities. You know, they form an LLC and stick a house in it, right? Just to protect yeah. it legal-wise. But see, all those LLCs and, and you know, small businesses and blah, 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 all those count as a business, right? And so the, the, the entities look at that and say, well, we're creating all these jobs. But if you take a look at how many, how many small businesses actually have employees, that number's been 6 million for a decade. And actually, there's, there's fewer small businesses being created and more deaths over the last six years, right? We've had more businesses going out of business over the last six years, and we've actually had them being created. So again, when you take a look at, and the point about this is when you look at the employment roles, the employment data isn't as strong as it is because we've been adding all these people to the role that really haven't existed at all. Right, yeah, and so, so you did a really good job of explaining it. I've always just sort of thought of it as this this giant fudge factor, um, which oh, it, it is. is. It's, it, it's, it, it, 
And you're saying it really is. And it's one that generally makes things look a little bit better uh, than not. And sometimes the fudge factor, the birth death can, can mean the difference between uh, a positive jobs report or a negative jobs report, right? right? So right. your point is, is, is it can be pretty influential. We just don't know if it's really based on anything. And, and it's, it's hard to a certain extent to your point, because you're like, hey, you know, there's a lot of people that just start something. And how do you know, you know, who've done that if they're not doing all their regular reporting? And on the deaths part, it's, it's not like companies, you know, fill out a form and say, oh, I've died here, right? So if right. a company hasn't been an active, hasn't been active for six months or a year, is that a dead company? Or is it just a, a small business where someone's distracted for a while, but it's going to come back to it, right? So yeah, exactly. There, there's all these things to it. And that's what that's my point is, is that if we take a look at the differential of actual employees, and, and I went back and I did the work on this a while back, there's about 10 million people in the US that have vanished from the roles. It's like, I can't find them. And a lot of it has to do with these adjustments and things that we do, but there's a very big, there's a big gap between the number of people we say are employed and the actual population. So, you know, right. we track the population. We know what the population is. We know when the population turns 16. And the one thing that we can track very closely is the demographics of our country, because we have all kinds of records on that. Who gets born, who dies, all that type of stuff. But when you calculate how many people should be working in the economy because they're over the age of 24 and how many people we say are working in the economy, there's about 10 million people that just aren't counted at all. And I have no idea where those people are. Yeah, I, I have a potential idea. And this is a rant for a different day because we, yeah. we could spend the whole time on this. Um, but is, you know, one of the things that really bugs me about um, the reporting of the em employment rate is uh, the huge number of people that are identified as outside of the workforce. Yeah. Um, it's like a hundred million at this yeah. point. I mean, it's literally like a third of the country. And yes, you know, some of them are young and some of them are too old to work, but there's a big chunk in there that, you know, if you have been unemployed and I can't remember what the length of time is, but it's some number of months, they basically just say, well, you're unemployable. We're going to take you out of the mm -hmm. denominator that we're using here. Right. Um, so, uh, so there's a lot of miscounting going on there, but I know a big issue, at least a few years ago, when I looked at this more closely was disability, that there has been an explosion yeah. of people getting, you know, a doctor's script that says, Hey, you're, you can't work for whatever reason. Right. And it, yeah. it, it, it used to not be that many people. And the last time I heard it reported, it was pretty close to 10 million. Um, you, know, you know, when that started? There's a very interesting chart. I published this uh, about two years ago. I was looking at that very same thing. Two things went off the rails, um, student loan debt and disability claims. Now, think about this, right? If I get disability claims, that's free money from the government. Right. I can use student loan debt for pretty much anything. I don't have to go to school. And, you know, it used to be in the old days when you actually had to go to the bank and get a student loan. They had to, it was specifically for tuition, room and board and books. That was it. And you had to qualify for it. And you had to have co-signers and all kinds of stuff. When the government took it over, they said, hey, here's the money, which is why tuition went through the roof. But people were taking out student loans and using it for everything but college. And they weren't even going to college in a lot of cases. They would just sign up for classes so they could get the money. And then they never went. And so what, and this all started in 2009. Both of these issues started in 2009. When the Obama administration came out of the financial crisis in 2008, the Federal Reserve started doing what they were doing. The Obama administration took over the student loan debt 
And we relaxed all of the kind of oversight on things like right, disability became and a lot social less security. Tight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just basically, if you were if you were an illegal citizen, no problem. Your social security, you can apply for whatever you want. And we just completely relax this oversight. And man, these things just that the claims. I mean, everybody, everybody that was walking around didn't have a job. They just claimed disability, and they got a script for it, and they got money. And this is why we saw that explosion on really all sides of that debt structure. Yeah. And uh, again, we, I'm trying to avoid falling into the, the pit of this rant because there's so much fertile uh, ground yeah, there. No, no. Um, <laughs> but the last point I'll make on it is, is the uh, one of the uh, documentaries or sources of information I used when I kind of dug into this a couple of years ago, they you know, uncovered that there were doctors in these certain areas who were basically like disability factories. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just had to know the right doctor who was willing to, you know, for whatever price, you know, he asked for, you could basically get a disability. <laughs> Pretty claim much. You just price. went to a doctor's office. My back hurts. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So anyways, rant for a different day. Um, okay. So um, I've, I've actually and got a- that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you get to 30 trillion in debt. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh I'm working my way up to a bigger issue here, but real quick before we do, I want to ask you what trades you guys have made recently, if any, but before we get there, um, I just did an interview with Steve Hankey, who's a very prominent economist, uh, Johns Hopkins, and he he provided what could be a very important part to the puzzle here that I didn't have before, but I'm kind of scratching my head because it, to a certain extent, it kind of contradicts where I think things have been headed and I think where you think things have been headed here, Lance. So I just want to kick it around for a a moment here. And I'm not in any way trying to say that Steve's wrong. I'm not at all, but um, you and I have been trying to prepare people for disinflation, right? Which is, Hey, at some point here, the monthly reported CPI is going to start coming down. We're not saying prices are going to go lower necessarily, but we're going to say the rate of increase in prices is going to start to moderate. Um, And, uh, Steve would agree, but he would say not by very much. So he's predicting that we're going to end this year at 7% CPI, December of 2022, and it's going to remain pretty high through the following year. It's going to end around 6% in 2023, which to me is still pretty high. And his his reason for this is uh, I've used the term the pig and the python, right? We, we, we issued all of this stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, tens of, or over, over 10 trillion combined, never been done before. Yep. And uh, at some point that, that, that pig of money makes its way through the systemic python and you, you don't get that support anymore. And everything it was propping up from stock prices to economic activity and whatnot goes away, right? And I think we feel like we're beginning to see, like that's a big contributor to the slowing economy that we're seeing and the recession fears that we have. Steve says, there's a lot of stimulus. There's a lot of pigs still left in that python. He uses a monetary bathtub analogy. And what's compelling about what he does, besides him just being very smart and the you know, fifty-year experienced uh, Johns Hopkins economist, um, is he's got one of Milton Friedman's equations uh, in his corner, and he actually walks through the math and basically says, when I interviewed him a, a year ago, when CPI had just gotten to like four and a half or five or whatever, he was predicting nine percent CPI, which sounded crazy back then, but he said, hey, the confidence that what gave me the confidence to make that claim was just this simple equation. And if we put X amount of new money into the system, this is where I think, you know, 
all things largely else remaining the same, it mathematically has to happen. We have to get this 9% number eventually. So that's why he's getting this 7% mm-hmm. and then 6% number from. So it's kind of like what's going to win out here, kind of like the, the purity of the math or a lot of the stuff that you and I have been talking about here. Um, just curious, do you have any particular reaction to all this? No, I mean, look, trying to break anything out more than about three months is kind it's of hard. Fools. It, it's very hard. And he, he could very well be right. And, and I'm not one to argue with Steve. He's way smarter than I am. So it's hard know. to interrupt. But one other piece of information I should have yeah. mentioned is, is he pegs a 70 percent probability of a recession. And honestly, I think he would he probably thinks it's higher, but he just the range yeah. he looks at, so nobody smart. else is higher than 70. So he's picking <laughs> yeah. the high end of the range. Yeah. I don't know. JP Morgan came out with 85. So I think he's okay. Oh, well, all right. There you go. There you go. Um, And then, no, look, you know, there's a lot of things that that affect inflation over time. And one is how we calculate inflation. And again, we we're always kind of adjusting with these numbers in in the inflation measures that we look at. So, you know, we have these this hedonic pricing and other stuff. So, um, you know, a couple of things are going to hinge on whether or not, you know, uh, inflation stays high. So first of that is home uh, is this homeowner's equivalent rent, right? So if housing prices stay elevated and don't come down and we don't bring rents down through a normal course of a recession, just rents stay high, then inflation is going to remain high. It's not going to come down. Um, if you take a look at M2 money supply relative to inflation and, and advance M2 about nine months, there's a very high correlation between the ebb and flow of M2 on an annual change basis and CPI. Um, so CPI is currently, you know, peaking up here at you know 8.5, 8.6. Monetary the the M2 supply number rate of change recently peaked there. Uh, you know, just recently peaked there as well. Advanced at nine months, and M2 money supply is is back down to about four percent inflation. So over the next nine months, what M2 is telling us is that inflation is going to fall to between four and five percent. So, you know, there's and that, there's a very high correlation between that between CPI and M2, and you can kind of watch that and it tells you a lot. But there's a lot of factors that that all feed into this: oil prices, what happens, you know, with uh, the supply chains. Do those free up at some point? Do we get more supply into the system? You know, so there's a lot of things that could a lead to inflation staying high or having a, a bigger contraction or disinflation in the economy. But you know, historically, if we're talking about a recession, recessions bring about disinflation because of the the very simple basic basic equation in economics of supply and demand. Right, it's demand so, destruction. Yeah. Right, which is why and, we spent so much time talking about that. Yeah, and that's and that's just math. I mean, you know, so so again, not arguing with Steve at all. And and again, you know, he's been right and and he could very well be right. But again, I think there's a lot of factors out here that are too hard to predict nine months out, much less three months from now. Okay. Yeah. And, and to be honest, he is predicting disinflation, right? It's yeah. going from eight point six down to seven by the end of the year, right? Not right. much. But he is predicting some. And the reason why this is important, folks, is, um, you know, even even though there's maybe a bit of a, a disparity between perhaps how fast things could cool versus how Lance and I see and, and what Steve sees, Steve still thinks it's stagflation, right, which which the, the stag part means stagnant economic growth. Right. And that still brings you to layoffs that still brings you to lower housing prices, things like that. Um, 
because you mentioned housing, I just had one quick um, headline here, Lance. Um, I was going to read this real quickly from a, a report that just came out today. Uh, the slowing suggests that, quote, we're at a tipping point in terms of home price growth, Selma Hep, Deputy Chief Economist at CoreLogic, told Yahoo Finance. We do expect going forward that deceleration in home prices is going to take an even harder turn and home prices will slow down substantially by this time next year. So now the actual experts that have sort of been not wrapping their arms around the, the potential for a correction in home prices, it's now at the point where they they can't deny it anymore and, and they're now beginning to jump on the bandwagon here, right? So um, where I'm going with all this and why I wanted to take this path is I put out a video earlier in the week, I'm gonna put up a link to it here, uh, talking about how just incredibly unprepared Americans are for retirement. Um, these are some of the stats that you'd mentioned earlier, Lance. Um, so just a, a couple quick ones off the top of my head. Um, uh, the majority of Americans have no retirement savings. Okay. And that's surprising and shocking, but not terribly. I mean, all American adults, sure, you got a bunch of 20 year olds in there. They haven't started saving yet. Right. So, what's important is to look at the cohort. Right. So, if you look at the cohort that's 55 to 65 years old, right, the one that's just approaching retirement age, the one that have, should have the most assets now saved up, right, to fund the rest of their lives, a full 49% have zero dollars saved. Okay. So half of them right off the table have nothing. If you look at the remaining 51%, the median savings account of that 51% is about $134,000, which isn't nothing. But if you're 65 years old, that's not going to last you the next 15, 30 years of your life. Right. Um, and for people that are thinking, okay, well, you know, a lot of folks can rely on social security and Medicare. Well, the average social security monthly payment is $1,600, that's $1,666.49, right? You can't live off that, folks. In fact, the average rent in America right now is $1,900, so it doesn't even cover the average rent cost, right? Moreover, the Social Security trustees just released their annual report. They are saying that the trust fund is going to be insolvent in 13 years by 2035, so even that meager amount may not be there or at least in, in that size, be reduced uh, in just 13 short years. Uh, that, that's if nothing happens. And we can have a whole debate over what the government might do between now and then. But on the current trajectory, on track to be insolvent in 13 years, Medicare is even worse. It's on track to be insolvent in six years by 2028. Yep. All right. So just horrifying stats, to be honest. I mean, this is a massive economic and social crisis, and we're not even talking about it yet. As, as, a, as a nation, we haven't even admitted the problem yet here. So Lance, I see you nodding as I'm seeing all this. Where I'm going with this is just, we are so unprepared for the future. And if we now enter into a recession that has any real teeth to it, it could be really uncomfortable for a lot of people in society coming up here. And I don't wanna be selling gloom and doom, but I just see enough probability here of some rough times ahead that I just wanna make sure that we're opening as many eyes as possible to people that now is a good time to take precaution for what could happen down the road. Not saying it's absolutely going to, but what could. I see you smiling as I'm saying all this. I'm sure you're having these discussions all the time with people, Lance, but but what's your reaction? No, no, I'm just, I'm sitting here just, you know, thinking about, you know, articles I've written lately about this. In fact, if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, um, you can just look up, I just recently published this maybe two, three weeks ago, 
you know, it's called whistling past the $96 trillion graveyard. $96 trillion is the unfunded liabilities of Social Security, Medicare, and basically our, our social safety net. And, you know, you, you people keep going, well, you know, government's going to do something, right? Well, we just pa- or, or just recently added more people to the Social Security role. We, and every time, and this has been going on since the 60s, and it's all in good, you know, it's, it's all set up and, and good nature, and we want to help people and and so, you know, we add widows and orphans to the social security rolls. And then we add, you know, um, you know, um, you know, firemen and pension other people to the social security rolls. And, and then we add more people to social security rolls for some reason or another. And, and so every administration comes along and they go, well, you know, we need to give more people money. So let's add more people to social security. And, and we keep doing this. The problem is demographics. In 1939, when we were passing, you know, social security and really get it up and running, there were 16 people paying into Social Security for every person that was taking out of it. Today, that number is less than two to one. And, you know, it's interesting. We've had this conversation here on the, on, on the show before, but, you know, there's a, a very big issue at hand in terms of demographics, which is our birth rate in the U.S. And more and more people are opting not to have children. More and more people are opting to have alternative lifestyles that don't produce children. Um, you know, and so, you know, and, and, you know, lots of conversations recently about abortion, right, because of, of the recent Supreme Court ruling, but that all provides, a, a, you know, uh, less bursts within the economy. And there's an old saying is like, if you want your economy to be, be stronger, have babies. You know, it's, you know, China ran into this problem with one child policy, right, and, and just basically devastated their economy for a long time. They've had to try to reverse out of that now. Yeah, and they've they, they hollowed out their entire demographic pyramid. I mean, they've got a yeah. massive reckoning ahead. Exactly. And we've Japan. done a little, a little bit of the same, not as much as them, but yeah. Yeah, but we've, you know, we've got the lowest birth rate since 1940. So, you know, Japan's got the same problem as well. And, and you can look at China and Japan and see exactly where we're headed. And, and Japan has a very big social pension system, just like we have in Social Security, that is entirely supported by the government. It's just, and if, and if the government doesn't support it, it's a problem. But that's why we always talk about Japan. It's a, it's a basically a, a fly looking for a windshield. We're kind of in very much in that same situation. My partner and I, you know, Richard Rosso, we constantly have this, this debate at the office because he's, you know, he's like, well, Lance, if the government doesn't, you know, handle social security, you're just going to have people showing up and you will be stepping over the bodies in the streets because they all depend on social security. Hey, I get it. But, you know, the numbers don't lie. You cannot continue to pay out what you're paying out in social security based on the simple math of what you've got coming into the system. And at some point you're going to have to, there's two choices. At some point, you're going to have to make very tough decisions about who gets money from Social Security and who doesn't, or those choices are going to be made for you through debt structures, people saying, hey, I don't want your debt anymore. The same problem Japan's going to have down the road here sooner than later. Um, but this is going to be the problem um, that is facing the economy. And again, and this is why we talk about going back to the original part of this conversation, you know. Uh, another article I wrote was talking about, you know, we've had, and this goes to the heart of why buy and hold investing doesn't work and, you know, just, you know, buy an index and hold on to it, you'll be fine over time. If that worked, if that really worked, if I could just buy an index and stick a little bit of money into it and over the long period of time, I'm going to be fine. 
If that really worked the way it was supposed to work, then why is it after three of the biggest bull markets in history from 1980 to present that you have so many people, according to your own statistics, Adam, that either have zero savings or have less than one year's worth of savings in the bank? You know? Yep. <laughs> well, and so I, 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 I want to... I want to get here to some really practical, tactical stuff for folks, yeah. but 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 to that point, um, there it's multifactorial to your point, kind of how we ended up here. But there were two things that were really interesting, and, and they're worth talking on, touching on briefly. And one one we don't really even have to, which is uh, the massive wealth inequality that's been created right. by the Federal Reserve. Right? We've we've railed about that enough, but the key thing with that is, um, uh, you know. Uh, not only did the Federal Reserve um, do a massive wealth transfer with its policies into the pockets of the already rich, um, right. but they've also created huge inflation, right, which is raising the cost of living. So you've got the worst case scenario for the middle and lower classes, right, where their 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 real wages aren't going anywhere and their uh, their costs, their real costs are rising, right. So they're getting right. there's just less and less available to save, right. You know, a big part of it too is is um, is human nature. It's a story of human nature in two ways. And I'll, I'll be really brief on this because I kind of go deep into this in the video that I did. Um, but uh, uh, there had always been government pensions. They've been around for millennia, actually. The Romans started them, but, but America had, had started offering pensions in the Revolutionary War. And then over time, uh, state and municipal governments uh, adopted it. But in the late 1800s, the private industry said, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll take a page from this book. And they started offering corporate pensions and people loved it. It was a great way to attract talent, right? Hey, come work for us. we got a generous pension program, right? That's how they competed. Um, but then by the 60s, by 1960 or by the mid 60s, 50% of all private workers were covered by a corporate pension, which is amazing when you compare that to today, right? And, and the reason why, and this is why I'm flagging it is, the corporations looked, they, they projected out at the future liabilities that they were taking on here. And they said, oh my God, <laughs> like these are ballooning like crazy. You know, we've got this baby boomer generation that's just hitting retire employment age. And they're the biggest ever in history. Like this is going to totally bankrupt us. Like all our profits are going to be to paying these people's pensions. So around the same time, probably not very much of a coincidence, you had um, ERISA or whatever it's called, um, you had the, the launch of the IRA, you had the launch of the 401k a few years after that. And it was sold to, to workers as, hey, this is putting your retirement in your hands. You don't want to have to depend on your company to be a good steward for you. Some of these, you know, you don't want the guy disappearing in the middle of the knife with, at night with a corporate pension fund. If you want more in retirement, well, you can just increase your contributions. Like you're in the driver's seat. This is great. And people kind of liked it. They said, oh, that sounds cool, right? So we started this grand experiment really right as the baby boomers hit adulthood and began working in mass, right? And of course, the corporations loved it. They were like, Phew, we got all of that stuff off our books. And now we can funnel all our profits, you know, everything to the bottom line, and we can you know, pay ourselves big salaries and buy back our stock and make a ton of money, right? So it was a, it was a massive transfer of liability from the corporate balance sheet to the household balance sheet here, right? And it was sold as, hey, this is all great for you. Well, this 40-year experiment, we're now getting to the point where we're finally seeing the end results of it. And it's really bad <laughs> where people didn't save. And, and they didn't save for some of the reasons I mentioned earlier, but we also got to own it too, that human nature, 
we're wired to maximize today, right? And so I can either save money today in my retirement fund, and yeah, I guess I'll have it decades down the road, or I can do something fun with it, or ah, bills are tight this month, I'm just going to push towards that, right? And we just didn't save nearly as much as we should, in addition to all the other issues that we had. So that's kind of how we end up in this space here. So now the big question is, is what to do about it, especially if we're potentially entering an era where we're not going to see the appreciation that we saw over the past decade or two, right? We're not going to have all that good juice, you know, pushing everything up, all that intervention. Um, and as some of these chickens come home to roost more and we have to make our way maybe through a real recession that lasts more than just three months, like the last one did or whatever, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, how are people who are watching this going to going to be good stewards of their capital here. So I mean, I'm going to let you talk, but but real quick, I know there are three really important factors, right? There's how much you put away, <laughs> there's how much you take out, and those two are 100% pretty much under your control. And then in the middle, it's how those assets are managed in the interim, right? So those are the three important levers to look at. But you talk to people about this all day long, Lance, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm actually writing a, a piece right now. It's I'm going to convert it to an ebook, I think. Um, <laughs> or you're being serious? I just... No, no, I'm being, no, I'm being serious. I wrote okay. this. I wrote this piece called "The Ten Immutable Laws of Money," and it's a very basic primer about, you know, how money works, and if you want to save money and you know grow wealth over time, you know, it's you know kind of goes through the ten kind of laws about how this works, and and stuff you don't want to hear. Right. I'm, I tell you stuff in this piece that is the last thing you want me to tell you, which is like, look, you don't send your kids to private school. You send them to public school mm -hmm. right there already. People are like, oh, my God, I can't do that. You don't pay for your kids college, not your responsibility. That's their responsibility. Um, you know, but these are all things that as we go through talking about a how many works, you know, the problem is for most of us, we're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. We always got to have the fancy car. We got to have the bigger house. You know, the, the median house right now is $350,000. I mean, you know, it, it's, you know we, we complain about, you know, how we need more socialism in this world because capitalism isn't working. And yet we're running around buying the, the average house we're buying is $350,000. Poor people, what we consider poor in America is if you're making $30,000 a year, and we go, wow, those people are really poor. They've got 30000 a year. You realize that they're in the top 1% of income earners worldwide? Yeah, I know. You know, and, and so our perspective about money is really skewed to a large degree. I got, by the way, I got criticized on the show last week for being an elitist, by the way. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, I'm glad what, you took your top hat and monocle off before we. Yeah, started I know, I know. Was, you know, I hate. You know, I had the top hat ready to go. I was, I was all set up, um, but you know, people forget. I lived out of my truck for three years, so you know, it's it's you know, this is all part of the process. And again, you know, when we look at how money works and the decisions that we need to make to build wealth over time, there's a great book. It needs to be updated, but a great book called The Millionaire Next Door. Um, go read that We've book. About you know. It. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great book to kind of get your perspective on things, you know. But you know, when we talk about you know the four hundred one k plan, even the guy that created the four hundred one k plan, you know, and went through all the you know talked to the IRS, got the rules set up, created the whole structure, he says that it was the worst idea ever because it wasn't meant for corporations to go, oh, great, here, there you go. Yeah. You know, you deal with it. I don't want to deal with your pension plan anymore. And, and 
And by putting it into people's control, they made all the same investing mistakes I always make, which is why after three major bull markets, most people don't have any money. They sold high, they bought, you know, they bought high, they sold low, they didn't get in the markets at the right time, they didn't contribute, they didn't save. Um, 401k plans are exactly the same way. We've gone through the stats. Out of all the people employed, only 25% of the people that are actually have jobs actually contribute to a 401k plan. Right. They don't use you know, it. it. It's 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 just it's it's terrible, but you know, this is, this is what we've done. We don't, you, you know, I've talked about before about creating a financial education class, which I think would be a huge benefit because people just don't get financial education. And again, you're not going to want to read my ebook because it's not how to get rich quick. It's not going to make you wealthy overnight. It's all the rules you need to know to build wealth over a lifetime. But if you follow it, it'll work. Right. It's the hard truths. Right. OK, great. Well, so let me let me mention here that we we've now asked the audience several times um, if they'd like us to do some special webinars on a certain amount of topics. I think the first one we ever talked about was doing a retirement webinar. Um, and Lance, I think we've agreed with your team that we're definitely doing it. Um, we haven't picked a date yet, um, but my hope is, is that it'll be soon, meaning in July or August at the latest. Probably um, August. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out of office for the next week. So it'll probably have to be first week of August. Okay. So we'll, 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 we'll lock in the date with Lance. I'll yep. let folks know here. Um, real quick, uh, if you send an email to retirement at wealthion.com, um, I'll put you on the list of folks to be notified when we've picked the time. So I can let you know when the time is and give you a link to how to register for it. Um, I mentioned that on my, my earlier video I did this week, and we already have like 70 people or so, Lance, that have, have nice. already been a hand raiser. So I think this one's going to be really interesting or, or of great interest to folks. Um, okay. So, uh, so folks, we will, we will give you that, uh, that, that webinar that goes, you know, specifically into, okay, if you have assets, this is how you should be approaching creating your retirement plan. These are best practices. These are pitfalls to watch out for. Anything else, the team, I'll, I'll actually let you sort of pre-sell this thing, Lance, because it's going to be the guys from your team who do this yeah. regularly, right? So give us just a quick backstory. Yeah, no. So so basically what this, you know, kind of course goes through is all the things you need to know to prepare for retirement. You know, not only just how to invest for retirement, getting ready for retirement, how to invest in retirement, but also how to maximize your social security. When should you draw? A lot of people are running out taking social security at 62. It's like immediately, as soon as I can get to it, I'm going to take it because it may not be there. Uh, you wind up leaving a whole lot of money on the table, like hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table by doing that. Uh, spousal benefits, uh, income generation and retirement, how to maximize income without impacting social security payments, um, Medicare, Medicaid uh, analysis. So, I mean, it goes through so many different facets of things that, you need to know, particularly as you get set up for retirement, it doesn't mean you have to be in retirement to benefit from this, but it's things you need to know as you head into retirement. Also, you know, a lot of people are shoving everything they can into a 401k plan at work or an IRA trying to get those tax deferrals. That can actually be very bad for you down the road because when all that money has to be taken out because of RMD requirements or just living requirements, that all comes out on a taxable basis. Um, you know, we talk a lot about having 50% of your money in a taxable account versus 50% being in IRAs. And this way, in retirement, tax rates are going to go up. There's no way around. We can't raise taxes in the future. There's we got too many bills to pay, too many bonds to pay off. Rates are going to have to go up. So as rates go up, you can bounce, you can mitigate some of that tax increase by drawing part of the money you need to live on out of your taxable account that you've already paid taxes on. 
and then balancing that off with your other tax deferred money. So you can limit your tax liability in retirement. So they go through all of this. And, and, and again, it's normally about a two hour seminar. We're going to condense it down to about an hour 15 um, around there to, you know, for your audience. Okay, great. But we'll have a lot of Q&A afterwards too. So I'm sure, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, great. So I'm going to leave it at there in terms of what people who, you know, have assets and, and a hopefully dependable income can be doing now to prepare for retirement. He, here's something that I, I, I want to veer into, territory I want to veer into just for a moment though, which is um, the people, if you have people in your life who have not planned for retirement. So we, I just gave you the stats for the people 55 to 64 who haven't uh, saved, right? So it's half of them have zero savings, a good chunk of the remaining half have insufficient, right? So right now there's over 50 million people 65, age 65 and older in America. 10,000 people per day turn 65 from right now until 2030, right? So this is still a tsunami of people coming, right? And if those stats hold, more than half of them, good deal more than half of them don't have enough saved up to, to fund the retirement that they're heading into, right? So this is a really big crisis. Um, and uh, I, I, I'll wax personal here for a moment. I have a, a relative who I've spent years with uh, basically dealing with helping them basically navigate and survive their elder years uh, with having no assets and no income. And I'll tell you folks, uh, it's, it's, it's not a situation to aspire to. Uh, it is hard. There are not many options and none of them are really good. Um, and the, one of the reasons why I want to flag this for folks is, is twofold. One, there, there, there actually are resources out there that can help make things a lot easier. And I'll mention a couple of them in just a moment. Um, but uh, there's also just sort of a, a family dynamic that comes into play where understandably people who are older and haven't planned, uh, they're scared. Um, they can be resistant because they don't necessarily want to acknowledge reality, step into reality or whatnot. Um, they're afraid of the downshift of the life they lived versus the way things are now and whatnot. And it can be a vortex of drama and dysfunction that can wreak havoc in families. And so what I'm trying to really underscore here for folks is if you have anybody like that in your life, um, or if, if, if whatever happened in life, you're facing a future that you don't have the full funds for, both people will be extremely better served by planning for it now with family and starting the dialogue and saying, look, let's, let's try to put kind of emotions aside for a second. Let's just talk about the actual facts. How much, how big is the shortfall we're talking about? Let's start sort of getting creative about how we can fill those shortfalls. Can we do it with family support? Can we do it with, um, you know, government uh, subsidized programs that are out there. And there are a lot out there, but they're hard to navigate. Um, and so uh, the sooner you can do that, the sooner you can take the real emotional trauma <laughs> and fighting and, and resentment and all that stuff that, that can very naturally build from all this, the more out in front of that you can get, uh, you'll be serving everybody's interests better here. So um, Lance, I, again, I know you, probably see this happen all the time in your line of work, but yep. um, anything you want to add to that? No, no, it's right. And it's what's, what's interesting is, is that we're facing what we call the sandwich generation. 
And what that is, is where we're going to see more and more people. So you were just talking about baby boomers. I'm right on the tail end of that. So my 65th birthday is 2030. So, you know, but we're going to see more and more individuals in that millennial phase that are having to both take care of parents as well as their children. And they're going to be sandwiched in the middle of this and trying. So they're trying to navigate their way to retirement while they're having to pay for their parents and support their kids at the same time. And this is this is one of the things that we that you know we talk about a lot. And I know it's not popular because I can tell you it's not popular when I tell you know our clients and prospects this when they sit down. It's like, okay, we've got to pay for our kids' college. I go, no, you don't, and you can't afford to because otherwise you're gonna they're gonna you're gonna be living with them. When, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to be that burden on them when they're trying to get their lives going and having kids and you can't afford to live because you spend all your money, you know, paying for colleges and things that you, you couldn't afford at the time. And this is all going to come home to roost. And this is a big problem. This is not just a few people we're talking about. This is a vast, we, we've somehow ingrained ourselves that we have to pay for our kids schools and we have to do these things. And they're all very, they're all very, you know, Christian moral things noble. to do. Yeah. Noble. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. The very noble things to do, but not at the expense of, you know, we, we say we're going to do this because we love our children, but we don't think about down the road is that now I'm going to be living with my children, which is right, not right, the, right. the, 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 the cost of retirement. Yeah. The cost of having to rely on them and potentially yeah. really materially, you know, financially imposition them later in their life may be a lot higher than the cost and imposition of the kid yeah. just financing their own way through college. Exactly. And, and again, look, and look, there's and like, you know, with our children, they have to pay their way through school and they've got to do all this. But, you know, when they come out the other side, I've got the option. I can help them pay off student loans if I choose to. I can I can do a lot of things, but I'm not going to jeopardize my 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 wife's and I retirement to pay for them through college. And I've got four of them to pay for. So, you know, it ain't cheap. But, you know, these are these are things that we can think about, um, you know, as we go forward. And they're not popular. Um, and they're very tough decisions to make. And they're not the way that we're told the way that we're supposed to do things. But we've got to start challenging some of these views because the views are wrong. And this is why we have the retirement crisis that we're having. And we're having a retirement crisis. Don't get me wrong. The reason that so many boomers are having to work in retirement is because they can't afford to retire. We talked about healthcare last week. You know, more and more boomers are spending all their retirement money because they didn't take care of their health on healthcare, right? They're in hospitals, they're having to, you know, get surgeries, they're having to do all these other things. And it's just, it's just eating up all of their retirement savings. Right. And, and sorry, just, just to, just to underscore that, because uh, I just saw the stats on this, it's something like a quarter million to 300,000 is sort of the average amount of out-of-pocket healthcare expenses that, that people have mm-hmm. to pay from 65 on, right? And what was that median retirement balance? 134,000. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. See, there's and and there and there's your problem, right? You got 134,000 saved up, and you're facing 250 in medical expenses. That's in today's cost, by the way, not inflation adjusted for 20 years from now. Yeah, so and, 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 it's let, a very it's a very big problem. It, well, it's a massive problem, and that's why I kind of made it the end topic here is is because I, I I I'm guessing that most people who are watching this at least have somebody in their social circle, whether it's a family member or a close friend, that that probably fits into this you know, aging and unprepared financially for the future bucket because it's so huge, right? But, but nobody um, wants to talk, look, Adam, this, yeah. is, this is one of those taboo subjects, right? What do you not talk about over the family dinner table? Religion, politics, and money, Yeah, right? 
and nobody wants to touch those because as soon as you start talking about money, it's like, well, right, right. Don't but, talk but to, to your me. point here. I mean, I this is it, it's a kindness, right? It's a kindness to put it on the table and, and to just work through the awkwardness around it, right? Well, and that's it, but it's awkward, right? I'm embarrassed. I don't want to tell you what a bad job I've done for myself, or I don't want you to know how much money I have. You know, and we've and we've 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 developed these barriers, right? Because it's like, oh, don't ask me how much money I have. That's not polite. You know, like, you know, don't, don't, but these are the conversations that you need to be having because you, this also ties into, you do not want a family member to die without a will. I mean, it, when you haven't taken just some basic proper steps for, you know, a death in the family, the, the, the whole issue of disposing of assets and the, and, and if there's money in the family, this is even a bigger problem without a will. Um, but, you know, when the fights start over who gets what without having that will in place, it can break up entire families. Right. Over and we things. talked about this the last yeah. time we were talking about estate planning. And, and th that is just such a self-inflicted wound that is so easily avoided. Right. So, yes, folks. And I mean, we're, do we're it online. Do yeah. yeah. I mean, and we're going to do an estate planning uh, webinar at some point, too, we, yep. we promised. Um, but I, I do want to reinforce your point because I live through it um, with this family member who was embarrassed fearful, whatever. I totally understand all these emotions, but just did not want to confront this discussion for 15 years plus. So th this was a, a slow motion train wreck that we could all see, but, but we couldn't actually take action on it because the key person at the center of it was not engaging. Right. And, uh, and so that put us 15 years behind the eight ball where when things really began hitting the road, and decisions were getting forced into the picture, we just had way fewer options because we had a decade and a half that had just been spent equivocating and avoiding and, and all that type of stuff, which is why I'm really underscoring while it's awkward and emotions are going to get high and you might need to take a lot of breaks and whatnot, it's a kindness to everybody involved to get this on the table as early as possible and to begin to build that plan. Now, I did mention that there are a bunch of, of resources out there that are available um, Again, this is where planning becomes so important is uh, senior housing is a big example, subsidized senior housing. So most states offer this. Um, it all varies from state to state and whatnot. Um, and and the, the senior housing solutions in the state can vary widely, too. Some can not be so nice. Some can be nicer. Um, but because there's so many the, the demand far outstrips supply in this situation. It's only getting worse. So in the case of my relative, we found a place that she was willing to go into once she finally got on board with the plan. It took another five years for her to get off the list and actually be accepted into this place because demand was so high. She literally had to wait for other people to die to be able to finally have a space open up for her. Um, but what's pretty amazing is, is uh, these places, they typically, um, the, the heavily subsidized ones, they peg your rent uh, as a percentage of your income. Um, and in her case, and I don't think it's super uncommon, it's 30% of her social security check, which is not very much. So her rent is a pittance. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's magical that she's able to actually get a place that's so cheap for her to live that has people around and support in case something happens to her and whatnot. And it is interesting. There's, there's almost, it's not even almost, there is, there's a lot more options that kick in if you actually have no money <laughs> because you begin to qualify for all this stuff, which is great. The problem is, is it's different from every state and every location. So you need to have like a quarterback 
that understands all these state systems who can say, okay, Lance, you know, you, you qualify for these five different programs and we're going to, I'm going to show you how to sign up on the lists and I'm going to shepherd all through for you. Cause it's, it is super arcane and super frustrating and super obscure. So, you know, finding a good like elder care consultant, and there are folks out there, they're worth their weight in gold if you can find a good one who can be your navigator through all this stuff. But the important point is, is you got to start early and you got to just fight through the awkwardness to get to the point where everybody's making decisions together. Yeah. And I heard Saul Goodman is a good elder care guy. Yeah, Saul Goodman. <laughs> Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. But yeah, so but no, you're at, you're absolutely right. And, and these are these are there are there are a lot of options out there. And and you know, this is you know something that we need to work on. And and again, just having those conversations are, are very important, but again, they're very tough. But you know, just it, you know, the other part about this is just also being organized. And part of these conversations are is hey you know, let's start getting, you know, all the paperwork together. Where's all the bank account statements? Where are all the investment account statements and getting this up together? Because one of the worst things that happens is somebody passes away unexpectedly and you don't know what there is, right? Where's their insurance policy? Did they have an insurance policy? Who do you call? You know, um, which banks do they have money in or not have money in? And they can be very time consuming uh, to chase all this stuff down and you know and and to, and to deal with that so part of the process is also just organization because it can make the 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 transition down the road from one spouse to a, to the surviving spouse or from the spouse or from the the parent to the child so much easier so much, so much easier yeah and especially you know you don't want to wait until there is a surviving spouse who has no clue what the, what her dead spouse did right or or all of a sudden the parent has dementia and can't be a source of answers to these questions or things exactly. like that, right? Yeah. Um, okay, real quick and wrapping up. Um, a question for you, and I'm, I'm genuinely proposing it here, so I'm curious to hear your answer, but uh, my understanding is that for a number of people who, who don't have so many assets that are just good for the rest of their life, no matter what happens, there are strategies that may make sense where you transition your assets to your kids uh, or to a trust or whatnot over time so that you individually are ultimately not having any assets or incomes that are that is in your name, um, right. even though you have supporters and therefore you qualify for a lot more programs than you otherwise would, right? Because if you, if you have enough assets, the system is set up right now, particularly the healthcare system, is to extract as many of those assets from you until you have no more, and then okay, fine, we'll put you on the free list. But that's only after right. we've drained every dollar you have, right? No, that that has that that runs even down. And I'm not an expert in this area. Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff are much better adept at this. But this even goes to stuff like Medicare, Medicaid as well. You know, yeah, I've kind of thinking of this a lot. Yeah, yeah, and and so yeah, there's a lot of strategies that you'll want to think about. If and again, if you've got a couple of million dollars in assets, you you move on, you're fine. Um, but you know, if you've got, if you're one of these people with 150,000 to say 300,000 in the bank, the you know for retirement, and that's all there is. You know, this is where you want to start thinking about strategies to where you can move some of that money, you know, out of your name sooner rather than later. Start kind of setting yourself up for you know these things down the road. And and again, it's, it, it requires you've got to do this properly. It, it it can't be done at the last minute. You know, it's it's these type of things. Um, but there are there are there are strategies to do this, 
setting up trust, special needs trust, those type of things where you can, and, and again, this goes to, if you have a special, speaking, speaking of special needs, if you've got a special needs child, one of the worst things you can do for them is pass away and leave them a bunch of money because it excludes them from being able to get government benefits until they yeah. use up that money. But you can set up a special needs trust that you can fund and it doesn't exclude them from ha from having access to these other, other government benefits. But again, this is all stuff you've got to plan. This is why having a really good estate planner um, or a really good financial advisor who's adept at these types of strategies can help you get this stuff set up well in advance of when you actually need it. But again, back to our conversation, it requires the first step is having the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so folks, so reminder, if you're interested in being alerted when we pick the date and have a registration process set up for this retirement planning webinar, uh, just send an email to retirement at wealthion.com. We'll put you on the list. Um, so Lance, uh, flag for maybe next week's discussion, um, but uh, I was having a back and forth with Stephanie Pomboy this morning. Um, and I shared with her, and I think she agrees with me, but kind of my gut feel, you don't necessarily have to share this, but um, I feel in, in large, I feel the probability is, is not bad that the era of speculative gains is largely behind us, that it's been an easy couple of decades yeah. for people in the financial markets. You could throw a dart and pretty much the rising tide made everything go up, right? Um, certainly, at least in the near term, you and I think that's not going to be the case. Certainly hasn't been the case this year. Um, we may have a year or more of, of this type of, you know, hard in, environment, but it's just bear with me for a second here. Let, let's assume that it is over, that we're not going to go back to the days where everything just goes up double digits year after year after year. Um, you mean I have to work in, for a living? Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is from an investing standpoint, I think income is going to become way more important than it has been. And what's so interesting is up until the past like two decades, like you, that's how you invested. You invested for income. Like the vast majority of the stock market's returns came from dividend, not from share price appreciation, right? And that's you. You really looked at a company's ability to produce positive cash flows and, and then you know return them to, to shareholders over time. Um, and so I think we're going to be shifting back into income becoming the predominant reason why you invest. And I think it's going to become so much more important going forward for the reasons we're talking about here. We've got so many people that are so unprepared for their retirement era. Having dependable income in your later years is going to take on a, a huge premium, I think, compared to where it's been the past decade or two. What do you think? I think you're right, but here's your problem. Because of what we've done to the market over the last two decades in particular. So again, we go back to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton says, hey, I'm going to rein in corporate pay. So we're going to cap CEO pay at a million bucks. And then Wall Street says, okay, fine. We'll just pay everybody in stock options, right? right? Which made this whole issue of stock buybacks and focusing more money towards increasing, you know, uh, you know, doing things to increase the stock price. This has led to a dividend yield. The, the, the historically pre-2000, um, you know, you, you hear a lot about from financial advisors, you know, they pull out this chart and they say, well, see, see this chart of the stock market over the last hundred years, it's produced a 10% return. Well, 6% of that, as we said earlier in the show today, right? We said, what did we say about earnings and economic growth? They both track about 6% annually. And that's because you can't have earnings without economic growth. So if the economy's grown at 6% over the last hundred years, so has earnings, right? So where did the other 40% of the return came from? Came from dividends. 
the current dividend today is about 1.9, right? And, and so because of this shift we've done in the markets to create more of the speculative attitude, corporations are opting not to pay as much out in dividends because they would rather focus it on stock buybacks, right? I mean, right. Apple is a good example of this. Apple has like 150 billion in cash. They could pay a you know a five dollar dividend every year to their you know shareholders, but they don't. Instead, they spent half a trillion dollars buying back shares. Now, as a shareholder, I'd be pissed, but you know I like the stock price because it goes up. At least it's going up for now. Um, eventually, this will change when stock buybacks no longer work, right? And this will be potentially this this era that we're moving into. We'll see. Right, and and we pre-railed against this about two months ago on this program. We 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 think they should be illegal or at least heavily. Right. So yeah, we won't curtailed. go on that one. But okay, so so first of all, here's my problem. I can't buy I can't buy ETFs because I'm going to get 1.9 percent. Can't fund a retirement on 1.9 percent in yield. Okay. Right. It, I'll it's buy bonds. To, yeah. Right. <laughs> Which I'll has been a disaster over the past. 10 well, yeah, plus years, right? But that's okay. But there, you know, we're about to have one hell of a capital gain run. In uh, in fact, that may have started this past week, by the way, uh, in longer and longer dated bonds. But look, yields are going to go back towards zero um, because, as we've talked about before, with thirty trillion in debt and growing, you can't have a five percent interest rate on bonds because we can't afford the service on the debt. Right. The the economy is all driven by debt, houses, credit cards, et cetera. So we can't have five, six, seven percent yields on bonds because nobody can afford to buy them. We have more zombie companies running around lately than than ever. And those are all dependent on low debt to stay alive. So interest rates are going to fall back towards zero. So, you know, now I can't buy bonds and generate an income. So, Adam, you tell me if dividend investing is going to be important going forward. And the speculative, the speculative trade in the markets is over, assuming that the Fed can't come back and do QE and drop rates to zero again, then I don't know where investors are going to get returns from. It's going to have to be from, from fundamental value, better stock picking, that type of thing, and, and managing portfolios over time for creating returns that pace inflation. So I, I, I agree with all that. Um, it, it may, and, and uh, you know, I appreciate you having this conversation with me because you know of your business model, but it, it may also mean some alternative assets like real estate investing yeah, or absolutely. you know other you know investing in oil wells or whatever. Just just things that produce a, a, a positive cash flow, right? Yeah. That you may want to be adding those into your portfolio specifically oh, yeah, yeah, because you're like that's going to be the part of my portfolio that no matter what happens to stocks, as long as oil is coming out of the ground, I'm going to get a check. You know. Yeah. Every quarter. Uh, no, no, look, I mean, look, any any good portfolio should be well diversified. And, you know, look, I have money invested in our models that we run, but I also do hard money lending. So, you know, I create income through hard money lending and, you know, highly collateralized and it takes extra work. But, you know, that's, you know, that's another way to generate income. So to your point, there's always things that you should be doing. You shouldn't have all your money in stocks, right? right. That's you know, and, and bonds. That's That should be part of your portfolio because they provide liquidity. Um, you know, the problem with real estate is it's not liquid, but, you know, I can buy multifamily apartments. I can buy houses. I can do Airbnbs. I can do a lot of things to create cash flow, And I can use a little bit of leverage to really increase that rate of return over time. So, Again, this should be all part of your strategy and a good financial advisor should be able to go through there and say, okay, here's how we're going to break up these buckets. You also need to think about annuities. You need to think about whole life insurance. You need to think about you know, other factors 
of your portfolio as well to not only generate long-term tax-free or tax-deferred gains, but also protect your assets as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. All right. Well, folks, look, add another list. If you'd like to see <laughs> us do a webinar at some point in time, sort of geared around income investing, let us know in the comment section below. All right. Are you well, going to have an email address, income at wealthyon.com? <laughs> uh, I, I, when we get closer to it, yes. Not right now. Don't, don't right. send an email to that because it's not going to go anywhere at the moment. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, look, uh, folks, thanks for making it through yet another long, uh, I think we're going to come in under an hour and a half this time, Lance, which is nice. great for us, but just a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and folks, um, you know, if, if, if this topic of retirement investing, particularly people in your life who might not be uh, prepared for it is, is hitting home in any way, and you'd like to sort of, well, let me put it this way. If you've got a story to share, share it in the comment section below. I know how tough it can be to deal with that. And as a community here, we can support each other. Um, all right. Well, look, in wrapping up here, um, as we say every week, uh, I just feel like the markets give us more and more reasons to underscore our basic premise here at, at Wealthion, which is um, these are hard times to invest in folks. There's a lot of cross currents. There's a lot of challenges. The outlook ahead doesn't look super bright. So have a good plan in place and recruit the professional guidance of a great financial advisor to help be your quarterback in here. If you've got a great one already, great. Stick with them. Send them this uh, this video. Ask them, hey, watch it and tell me, you know, just explain to me how I'm well positioned for what these guys talked about. But if you don't have one or you'd like a second opinion of uh, one that is very close to all these topics, maybe even Lance and his firm themselves, uh, just go to Wealthion.com, uh, fill out the quick form there and schedule a free totally free, no strings attached consultation with them. Uh, they'll just listen to what your situation will give you their best advice on what they think you should do. Um, and with that, um, if you are enjoying these uh, weekend uh, long sessions with Lance and I, uh, <laughs> please do me a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And you've got my uh, guarantee that no matter what the markets do between now and next week, Lance and I will be here deconstructing it and, uh, uh, you know, trying to make the best sense we can for everybody. Um, Lance, thanks so much for yet another great week, my friend. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.